Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 1? We've actually come to verse 9. This is what we looked at last week. These slides were all supposed to be one sermon, but it never happened that way. But the section, the context begins, if you want to review with me, there came a man having been sent from God. His name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came for a witness that he might testify concerning the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he, but that he might witness concerning the light. We noted last time, again, until the first Greek word there came takes us out of pre-existence, which is where we were in the first few verses into existence. Now, let me remind you that And we should look at it this way, of course. In John chapter 20 and verse uh, 31 or so, he gives the purpose of his writing the gospel. The Holy Spirit informs people through John's pen. In the latter part, the very last few verses of uh, John, John says, I have written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, Jesus the Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing in His name, you would have life, eternal life, to believe in His name. So he starts, unlike the other gospel writers, he begins in pre-existence, carrying us all the way into the bosom of the Godhead, revealing to us that Jesus, and of course the kicker is in verse 14, Everything in verses 1 through 13 is leading us to verse 14, which says, and the word became flesh. But these preparatory remarks are very important uh, uh, for us to get a grip on all that John teaches. Because 90% of John's gospel are things about the ministry and life of Jesus that are not found in the first three gospels. So it's a... It's a a different kind of gospel. It's not one of the synoptic gospels. Therefore, John John takes us into a reflection of the mind of the Greek world in which he lived. Logos, that Greek word that's translated word. We talked about that. What that would have meant to the Greeks. And now he brings this into existence. There came. And in bringing us from pre-existence into existence, he brings us to the importance of that which exists, namely people here are a witness for Christ who is the light. Now remember, there's a parallel to this. This is the the New Testament version of Genesis 1. And there are things that could not be known back in the time of Genesis 1 that are revealed to us about the beginning, about the creation in the New Testament. Couldn't have known it, couldn't have been revealed to us until the Christ of God became a man, until God the Son condescended and, and revealed himself as a man. So having revealed himself and knowing that, John, the disciple, the apostle, gives us a little bit deeper knowledge 
of what happened in the beginning. In Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. Previous to that, there was, there was darkness on the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And God said, that's the word. And there was light. God saw the light. It was good. God separated the, night, the light from the darkness. And he, the light he called day and the darkness he called night. John carries us into a deeper understanding that it isn't just a chemical reaction because God called light, light before there was a sun or a moon or stars. So there's something deeper than just physical light with regard to the biblical teaching of light. The enlightenment of the truth Everything else is in darkness. It's a lie. That cannot be completely revealed except by God himself. Namely, God the Son. So that brings us to where we came to. Verse 9. The true light. The true light. Elithinon, true. That means true as opposed to false. The real thing is opposed to counterfeit. The source rather than the reflection. The true light. There's only one source of light. There's not more than one source. There's one source. There may be many reflections of that light. And I hope and pray to God that Shiloh is one of those reflections of that light. But the true light is that, is, that, is that whom, is he whom, enlightens every man. So the true light who enlightens every man. How is every man enlightened? By the condescension and the incarnation of the Christ. The, the second of the Trinity, God the Son, Almighty God. Referenced as the Godhead in the New Testament. We can never know the completeness of God because he's God. However, God will reveal himself. And when he does, God, the Son, brings forth the creation and then projects himself in the creation so God the Son lays aside his deity and he becomes in the time-space continuum where we are and he enlightens every man. Now, there was a dim reflection of the truth in the Old Testament, but they had not yet had the enlightenment that we have since the virgin birth of Christ. It was impossible. Now the prophets prophesied and the patriarchs preached and they had a vague and veiled understanding and they clung to it. They were saved on credit. We're saved with a debit card. They were saved with a credit card. All the money's in the bank today and we draw on it endlessly. 
But they had the light that God would give to them so that they could continue the message. However, the true enlightenment, the true light could not come until God the Son brought it within himself. He enlightens every man. How does he do that? Number one, he is Logos. Can't lose, lose sight of that. He is the word. So as Logos, he is the, the thought, expression, and mandate of God. The word Logos, who, verse 14, is made flesh. So as God the Son... He enlightens us, first of all, by revealing to the, us to the fact that we are of a lost and depraved race. We're hopeless. And we're going to see at the end of this what it means by being hopeless except by the miracle and grace of God. So we're hopeless and helpless without a Savior. That is revealed by the true light. And Christ, when he comes to take sin upon himself... Reveals to us the, how, how, how magnanimous sin really is and how horrible it is to us. He reveals to us sin to every man. Every man is a sinner. He reveals to us salvation, how men may be saved. He reveals to us the glory of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, the grace of God. He reveals all of these things that we could not have known completely until he came into this world. So the true light who enlightens every man was coming into the cosmos. Now notice the progression in the language. He was coming, he was in, and through him it came into being. Enlightens every man, this true light was coming into the cosmos. Now, probably you have it translated as world. And when we think of the world, we think of the globe on which we live generally. But cosmos is a deeper Greek word that means an ordered system. The system of existence that is ordered and orderly. Well, that would be the universe. It moves according to laws of physics, much of which, many of which are still beyond our comprehension. But things are held in this delicate balance. And the one who holds it together, Colossians 1, is none other than the, the Logos, God the Son. He holds all things. All things are by him, through him, for him. And in him all things are held together. Synestomy, the Greek word means it. it may be translated consist or something like that, but it means they're held together. So here he is. God will create a universe. And God creating the universe makes himself relevant to it and that is God the Son. Anything created could not contain the whole of the existence of God. God must, according to his purpose, accommodate himself, and that is God the Son. So, 
He was coming into the cosmos. He's creating it. He's going to become relevant to it. And he's going to become personal with it. He was in the cosmos. God accommodated himself. God the Son. He had to lay aside deity and he had to lay aside glory and power. He accommodated himself. He was in the cosmos. And the cosmos through him came into being. What profound power. God would create the universe. And he would do it by accommodating himself into that time-space continuum to create it and then become interactive with it. This is the one who enlightens every man. You're in darkness unless you're in his light. So the enlightenment is that we are sinners, we're lost, we're of a fallen race. We cannot be saved unless God saves us in his way. And it must be God who saves us. We cannot save ourselves. We'll see more about that later in just a minute or two. Everything through him came into being. It's his. And the cosmos did not perceive him. Did not grasp him. He came to his own. Now, in the context as we move through John, we come to understand these would be the most religious people in the world to whom he came first. Namely, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. He came to them. If anyone should have recognized him, they should have. They gave to us the oracles. They gave to us the Old Testament text and everything from the promise of the seed of woman after the fall of man all the way through is building up this beautiful portrait of the Savior, the Christ of God, the Messiah. And he was meticulously identified in every way that was necessary. And so he came to his own and his own received him not. To receive, the, the word means to lay hold on. He was not perceived. He was not received. So this is sin. The light came and those in darkness just continued on in darkness. They did not receive him. So the world is in darkness. He even came to his own. The very ones who should have been the priesthood of the world. And they had everything, but they, they believed in a religion of self-righteousness. They could save themselves. They could be obedient to a set of rules that were designed really to do nothing other than to show us how bad we are. They were, the, the, the law was never designed to save us. 
It was only designed to make us realize how unsaved we are. And then, of course, God provided the, the foreshadowing of the atonement by giving through grace, by, by giving, by allowing his people to offer sacrifices and to identify with, uh, with, with a sacrifice and to identify with atonement. But they didn't see it as a need for a savior. They saw all of that as just a good work. Look how good I am. I'm bringing another lamb to the slaughter. Me, me, me. He came to his own. The cosmos did not perceive him. His own did not receive him. However, in the Greek, there is this power that's called a connective adversative participle. In English, we call it a conjunction, I guess. But there is a dramatic shift from this verse to the next one. And there it is. But. That means that not everything exists and abides in unbelief. There is a dramatic shift. And here's the story of it. But as many as received him, that's salvation. Previous, previous was sin. Received him not. Salvation received him. This, this contrast, this, this shift from unbelief to belief. How does it happen? How does this dramatic shift happen? We're in darkness. That's just the way we're born. How can we be removed from a domain of darkness, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light? How does it happen? It happens with him, not with us, with him. He gave to them authority. Now that word, authority, is an interesting word, exousian. Last word on the front line, top line, exousian. Existing, it's a compound word. It means delegated or appointed power. That power is not ours to produce. It's his to give. Can you see that? What's the difference between moving from unbelief to belief? The difference is a gracious God. He gave, that's grace. He gave to them. He, he gave to them delegated power to be children of God. I don't have that power. It has to be given to me. This is not my power. Once I have this power, I can receive him. I cannot receive him. I cannot perceive him. I am in darkness. There is no light shining on me until he enlightens me and then grants to me the power to be a child of God. I can't do that. There's nothing I can do. I'm dead in trespassing sin. 
I have to be saved by a gracious God and there's not one thing I can do to save myself. Not one thing. This is why worship of believers is so glorious. We've been enlightened to the truth. We are sinners saved by grace. We've been granted power. This is conferred authority. This is not something that comes from within me. He gave to them authority to be children of God. We'll define that a little further. To those believing in his name. His name. God has given him the name that is above every name. In the Old Testament, he is Yeshua, Yeshua. In the Greek, he's Jesus. In English, he's Christ. Yeshua Hamashiach, he's Jesus the Messiah. He's Jesus. He's Jesus the Christ in the New Testament. The Christ of God. God the Son. So what has he given to me? He gave to me the power, the authority, the right to be a child of God and gave to me the spiritual rebirth so that I could believe in his name. What is Eshua? What does that mean? It means God is salvation or God saves. That's what it means. You go back and search the Old Testament and you will see all of these surnames to Yahweh. Yahweh, the name of God, it's uh, Yahweh Rafi, Yahweh this, Yahweh that. All the way until the name of Jesus. There is nothing else to add to the name of God because Yeshua becomes all-inclusive. It gathers all. He, you know, he, is, he is the God of the army of banners. He is the God of the armies of heaven. He's the God of wisdom. He's the God who is our shepherd. He is God who is the healer. He's God this. He's God that. have all of these surnames in the Hebrew, but they all stop with Jesus, with Yeshua, because all of that is inclusive in salvation. Yahweh saves. How? By giving us the power to be children of God that we might receive him and believe in his name. This is God in the flesh. Yahweh. Yahshua. Yahweh saves. Jesus. Jehovah. Saves. He is salvation. There is no other. So you have, this, you have this shift from unbelief to belief. And here is belief. God, by his grace, gives us something that we cannot attain ourselves. That is why your experience of salvation... In your life, 
should be the most treasured and precious thing that you could think of. Dead in trespass and sin, totally unable to do anything to move toward God in darkness. Can't see, can't live, can't move, can't be saved. Unless God chooses to save you. Unless God wills to save you. You're not saved by your will, you're saved by God's will. How do I know? Well, let's keep going. To those believing in his name who were born, okay, let's take that and draw an imaginary arrow back from born to children. Children are born, right? It is John's gospel in John 3 where we have this great teaching of rebirth. You must be born again. In darkness, dead, in the flesh, you can't do anything. All right, so here it goes. Who were born? Not of blood. You can't inherit salvation. Nor of the will of the flesh. You can work your way into salvation. I'm going to be good this, good that, good this, good that, good this, good that. Oops, I made a mistake. But I did four things that were good, so that leaves me a plus three. It's how people think about this stuff. They think that there's some cosmic blind woman who has these balances and, you know, the good stuff is piled, piled over here and the bad stuff and which balance is going to win when you die. You're not saved by the will of the flesh. You, you know what that means? You cannot will yourself to be saved. Nor of the will of man. Man willed to save himself at the Tower of Babel. How'd that work out for us? Not very well. Man willed himself by the sacraments and keeping of the law and all that stuff. Man willed himself through the Pharisaical ages of the Old Testament and into Judaism in the New Testament. Man willed himself to be saved. Didn't work out very well. I cannot, have, I cannot produce within myself the power to be a child of God. It must be given to me by Logos. I cannot believe in his name unless he empowers me thus to do so. And I cannot be born again except by a miracle of God. Here it is. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who saved me? God saved me. Not my parents, not my efforts. Not my religion, not my denomination, God help us. Only God saves us. God. It is a thing of God. God the Son comes from pre-existence into existence. And he comes uniquely to be our only source of light. It can bring us out of darkness. There's no other source of light. There is, I, he's the light. The life of men. There is no other. 
We're here today and we're assembled and we're in worship. And we sit as disciples. Not because we came of our own power. But because we came by the grace of God. The grace of God enacted upon us. Granted to us the power to be children of God. We did not achieve that ourselves. We were dead. There's nothing we can do. We were dead. Listen. I was born again, not by my parentage or ancestors or whatever genealogy. Who were born not of blood, nor of will of flesh, nor of will of man, but of God. Salvation is a miracle of God. We go back to the end of John. Well, there's 21 chapters, but in chapter 20 at the end of it. Again, heaven tells us through John, I've told you all these things. Now, we're going to have to keep this in mind. The will of God, the will of God, granted authority to be children of God. Keep that in mind all the way through the gospel of John. Christ is doing something directly. God, the son. People are not producing their own salvation. They're not producing their own faith. They're not producing their own repentance. All of these things are gifts from God. And so we worship and rejoice and thank him for all that he has done for us. But as many as received him, he gave to them, he gave to them authority to be children of God. To those believing in his name, Yahweh saves. Great God Almighty saves me. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of will of man, but of God. Every time someone comes professing Christ, we are privileged to stand in the miracle power of God who has just transferred something, someone whose name was in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. He has thus in his purpose drawn them and called them into his salvation and we can only stand there and bask in the miracle power of God. To save those who are otherwise dead and lost. And naturally and normally doomed for hell. People ask about, you know, how does this, how is there a difference? Here are these that are lost and they're going to hell and these are saved. And how is the difference here? Let me tell you something. We'll spend eternity digging into the grace of God. It's not something that we can know, but it is, here is something we can know. Apart from Christ, everybody's lost. And if God had not intervened by grace, nobody would be saved. And I'm so thankful that God has saved me as you should be. 
If you're in Christ. And so now Christ will give to us by the end of the book. This commission to go and preach this good news of the logos of the light of God the son. And that salvation is available though we are born into darkness. And we exist in darkness apart from him. There is one who will enlighten us. And we preach this message to everybody. And God takes care of the rest of it. Of the will of God. We just collapse and surrender into the will of God and thank him that he would even save one when he doesn't have to. And how wonderful it is to see people come to Christ. The miracle of the grace of God. That the one who enlightens every man in a spiritual sense is flying through time. And drawing all of those who will be enlightened, all of those whom he would call to himself until at last, at the end of all things, at the consummation of the age, we are gathered together. And we will recognize the fullness of our eternal life, rewards, and in due time, the new heaven, the new earth, because of the grace of God. The will of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came into this world to save sinners. If you're here today without Christ, it is our plea, it is my plea, my appeal to you to come to Christ. The great, good, wonderful news and the truth of it is you couldn't have that thought. Except God would reveal it to you. If you've never made that public, you'd like to do that today. In just a moment, we'll stand with our song of invitation. And I would invite you to come and let me pray with you if you would come to Christ. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian, you want to come and be a part of this congregation. You want to make that public, you come. Let me pray with you. And if not, as you leave, if you have questions or want to follow up further on this appeal, there are deacons and their wives who are in rooms right across the hall as you exit. You'll see them. And you might want to go ahead and talk to them about this. They're there for you as well for this time of invitation. Father God in heaven, Lord, bless this moment in which we're powerless. We cannot do or cause to be done that which only you can do. And so we submit to you now and ask you to perform in this appeal and in this time in the way that you see fit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Prayerfully, would you stand all over this room? We're going to prayerfully sing our song of invitation. You come, would you?